This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and we're back again talking mostly about ourselves. We do feel important, don't we? Well, I know my co-host is important. Uh, we're both important co-hosts. It's it's oh. in the it's literally in the name, like co-pilots. Yeah, but the co-pilot, the pilot and the co-pilot. So it's, it's, it's you never have a plane with two co-pilots. I hope because that means nobody's flying the plane. <laughs> Uh, sometimes the co-pilot flies the plane. Yeah, but often not. So if, when the co-pilot's <laughs> flying the plane, does he become the pilot and the pilot becomes the co-pilot? Do they literally swap roles? I know they don't, but I just think it's funny. I have no idea, to be honest. It would be cool yeah. if they did. I know. I mean, I'm it would kind ceremony. of make sense. Yeah. <sighs> let's not talk about air, airplane pilot careers, but let's talk about our careers. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I know a bit more about that anyway, so maybe that doesn't I make hope sense. So. <laughs> <laughs> Tiny bit more, anyway. So, for people who have listening to the episodes before, we ended the last episode with about... Uh, oh, we talked about our own career paths uh, in the whole series about career change and things like that. We thought it was useful to kind of also illustrate what we have been up to in the last uh, couple of decades. And we kind of ended halfway our careers, I think. And if you're okay with it, I'm going to pick it up with my next step. That was a big cliffhanger. Let's do it. It's a whole week's cliffhanger. So when I ended my tale of sorrow, tale of woe, tale of whatever, I was at uh, Sarsara working for a government high-performance computing center, and I decided to leave there. Now, the reason I wanted to leave there was because, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of went there with a certain idea in mind, being getting a broad basis of knowledge again so I could do other things. So that job was never intended to be my end career part or whatever. It was always intended to be a step to something else. However, the step I took when I joined Hortonworks was a bigger step than I ever imagined because I actually moved from uh, a life of being post-sales, no, uh, yeah, post-sales and support and things like mm -hmm. that, or sysadmin, DevOps thing, into the front lines, because Hortonworks, uh, the recruiter actually contacted me to ask if I was interested in a pre-sales role, a solution engineer, I think it's called, at Hortonworks, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. And that was something of a big think time moment for me. Because I already mentioned, I'm not really a very social person, outgoing person, and actually being in a discussion with customers and trying to convince them to buy our products, you, you kind of have to be a little bit sociable, I would say. I mean, being the antisocial asshole that I sometimes am <laughs> would not work very much. I wouldn't use the word asshole. Commodion, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's too difficult for me. That, that's, I like the word though. But anyway, it was a, a big think moment. But of course, going from a post-sales to a pre-sales uh, career also has advantages and one of the main advantages is money if you talk if you're in sales and you're talking to customers the customer facing it's called you will get more money and that's also a bit of a red flag because typically if a job pays well there's something wrong with that job and in this case please disagree if you do, if you do if you think i'm wrong here but for me the pre-sales job it's a job that not that many people can actually do I mean, you do need to have both the technical expertise and a bit of the social stuff, which I had to learn, basically. But of the few, well, the, the, the smaller amount of people that can do it, even less want to do it. Because people that are good in technology typically don't want to be bothered with the whole sales process and working with sales reps and doing the political play and 
doing the convincing and things like that. So it's actually a job that uh, there's a lot of vacancies and not a lot of people going for them. And that the demand and offer prices go up. Basically, that gives us a better salary. So that's a good thing. And it definitely played a role, obviously, should. But the whole social aspect, the, the stress of the job was a totally different uh, size. I mean, it was a different world. Uh, being in support, there's a bit of stress, but basically you have your knowledge base. You you, you learn after after a couple of a couple of years what the usual suspects are. You do some root cause analysis. You have your tools. You kind of can do your job without too much stress. If you're in a pre-sales job, you're kind of frontline cannon fodder, and you have no idea what's coming what's going to hit you <laughs> today. <laughs> you go for a meeting. It's all we, we prepared everything. We set up our meetings, presentations, demos. It's all ready. You start customer. Yes, we're here to tell you this, and the customer says, "Oh, that's cool, but today I want to talk about something entirely different." So being able to do that switching was something that really, really, ah, I say that it caused a lot of stress. I actually got got some physical problems from the stress at that point as well. And there were a couple of, uh, I mean, I'd, I spent uh, some time at pre-sales now. There have been times that I thought, am I really want to, really want to do, keep doing this? Mm. And I'm kind of elaborating a bit more here because I do talk to a lot of people in support because, well, I'm still in a company that sells software. So support cases come up and we do have communication with them. And people are sometimes looking at, should I go for a pre-sales job? I mean, it's perceived as a higher job. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's true or not. I have ultimate respect for uh, for support people have been support for yeah. 30, 13 years i know how hard it is but they want to they, they're kind of looking at doing the move but it's a very different world and it's not really that clear if you're in support what it entails i mean when i was working at silicon i think i said this last episode as well i looked at these pre-sales people as magical creatures who could do everything and the reason i'm expecting Going on a bit here is just to say, if you're looking at a pitch job, don't be too afraid. Yes, it's different. Yes, you'll have to change. Yes, there, there is more stress involved, but there are also a lot of benefits. The, the things you can do, the breadth and the broad, the, the broadening of your horizons is in, enormous. Being able to do to do a, be to be a good pre-sales engineer, you can't just focus on the little thing that you know because you need to be in a, in a dialogue with the customer. So you have to kind of you can never know better than him or her how to do their job. They're doing the job in the, end, in the end, of course, but you do need to know enough to be able to talk with them at their level in their bubble of experience, bubble of terminology, things like that. And that kind of forces you to really broaden your horizon. And if you get a good support engineer, you already do that most of the time. Because when you have a, a difficult support call, being able to communicate with the customer on his level, it usually reduces tension, makes it easier, and the customer will be more agreeable and you have a better time uh, doing a support job as well so sure it's different it's not that different personally i wish i would have made the change a lot sooner because mm. that silicon graphics when i said earlier uh, that's the first time i had a manager i was a good a really 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 good manager hey patrick you're still not listening i know but still if you do <laughs> <laughs> but he already started to push me a little bit towards pre-sales and always always said no nah, that's way too dangerous uh, dragons live there 2020 hindsight, I should have done this a lot sooner, to be honest. Anyway, I mean, I, I've been I've been doing pre-sales, solutions engineering, sales engineering, call it what you will, for over 18 years, and I I do agree with you in that it is a it's an elite role. It's a very 
highly uh it is a high pressure role mm -hmm. i think i agree with that it certainly can be very stressful at times depending you know depending on a lot of things depending on the types of customers you're working with the types of products that you're working with types of organization you're in the team that surrounds you and supports you hopefully and you know all of those things and and your own personality and and the way yeah. that you are built like all of those things can either combine to make it even more so more stressful or some of those things can combine to ease the stress but either way i think i do think it's of quite an elite role i do think it's quite a unique role in terms of the blend of deep technical skills mm -hmm. um strong social skills commercial awareness yeah. as well um and you know understanding not just the technology but the business uh behind the technology and the business that the customer or the prospect is is involved in and how your solution can impact them and you know in some cases educating them mm -hmm. as to how that can be the case so you've got so many different aspects to this role and it's one of the things that i i love doing and i've done for many many years of interviewing people is i love to understand people's origin stories like the, the first time that they realize that this, this thing called pre-sales or sales engineering or solutions engineering exists and you know I'm often interviewing people that, you know, some people that have been doing this for a long time, some people that this is their, this is their first role, but still trying to understand how people find out this is a thing because it's not an obvious role out there. I say, I call it, you know, an elite role. I guess another way of describing that is it's a niche role. Yeah. It is quite a, a narrow group of people. I agree that with you that can do this at an exceptionally high standard and it's just not all that well known even even in the tech industry it's not all that well known what this role actually is the other thing about the the se role and it, I, to me this is the sort of the vendor role as a whole is i i never actually intended to stay on the vendor side when I first, you know, this is sort of stepping back into the previous episode when I you know, moved across to, to Red Hat, I, at the time, I figured I would join a vendor and it would give me a chance to experience lots of different companies over the course of my time there. And I would figure out, oh, like this is a company actually that I quite, you know, might quite like to work at and would you know, probably pivot to one of those companies over a period of time. That's never happened <laughs> in uh, since I moved into the into the vendor side. Maybe it maybe it will one day. Maybe that will will come around. But I I must say I can't see it at the moment. But I it's just interesting that my my initial view was not that I would stay in this world for the, certainly for the duration that I have. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, now that I'm here, I'm here to stay. Uh, I like it at the vendor side. Um, I mean, consulting is another thing that people sometimes look at. If you're moving mm -hmm. up from support and again up down, there is no better or worse. Um, but consulting, I mean, those people are too smart for me. <laughs> <laughs>
But anyway, that was my move to Hortonworks. And uh, one light in the, at Hortonworks, and I'll let everybody decide for themselves with a highlight or low light. That's where I met Dave. <laughs> Indeed it was. Indeed it was. But you weren't there yet, were you? No, no, I, I wasn't there yet. So we, we left our, our previous uh, sort of story where I had uh, I just decided to move on from Red Hat and I joined a company called Canonical. Now, as I mentioned, sort of a few people, you know, Red Hat had gone through a huge amount of growth during the time that I was there and a few people had sort of moved on to you know, something smaller, something earlier stage, uh, something growing you know, far quicker and something with a, a different focus. And one of those things was um, sort of enterprise uh, Linux on the desktop, uh, which, you know, we can all still debate whether the uh, the year of the Linux desktop has actually come yet. Next year, definitely next year. Next year, definitely next year. Okay. Um, but the other thing that uh, they started doing relatively... Uh, soon after I joined, or around the same sort of time that I joined, was getting into um, into the the pub, both the public cloud space they were already quite prevalent in, and the private cloud space was something that then began to spin up as I was as I was there. So I this is another example, or this is I think the maybe this is the first example where I joined as uh, uh, an individual contributor and then made my way basically up through the ranks. Uh, so I joined actually as a, a partner SE focused purely around the, the partner ecosystem that they, they had built up and were, were continuing to build up. Um, and I sort of spent a lot of time initially just upskilling partners, a bit of training, a bit of education, um, helping them with with deals, working with um, both direct sales teams and partner sales sort of folks as well, and really just sort of starting to to get that that partner ecosystem in a in a better place. Moved on from that and um, was given the opportunity to actually start building. Um, you know, their, their sort of sales motion when I first joined there was quite strange and fragmented and relatively early on decided that actually we needed to, to put a lot more structure behind this uh, and an opportunity opened up for me to actually build like the, the sort of really first global solutions engineering uh, sort of organization there. So I stepped head first, feet first, who knows which first, uh, into that and sort of went through the process of, of building up a global team. Um, hiring people all across the world, a lot of folks in North America, folks scattered across Europe and folks scattered across uh, APAC as well. And, you know, grew that team pretty successfully to around about 20 people and had a huge amount of fun doing it. Now, this was back in the, the sort of times where private cloud and public cloud were both really uh, in ascendance. So this was uh, when OpenStack was very much in its, in its peak. And we've talked about the rise and fall of OpenStack in previous episodes, so we won't go into that in too much depth. But 
this was a time where people were pouring huge amounts of money into both public and private clouds, uh, both the development of them and the operating of, you know, new paradigms of, you know, DevOps and SRE and um, sort of going through the Kubernetes, no, not, not in really yet into Kubernetes as much, but sort of certainly going into microservices and then towards the latter stages of my time there, sort of Kubernetes was starting to appear on the, on the very early horizon. And this was, you know, this was a, an experience that I will sort of very much still, still treasure to this day, because this was an organization. This was also my first organization that was remote first. This was, and this was back in what, 2011, I joined. So this was quite some time ago. Now they did have um, a few offices around the world, but they had far more people that were remote working than they had in offices. And they did have a, a really strong remote first culture. And I think this was the, the first organization I'd worked remotely previously. My, my time at Red Hat was all remote. Uh, some of my time um, elsewhere had been remote as well. But this was the first time where I thought that actually this made sense. This is something that was a truly effective way of operating. So I will, I will always sort of give Canonical a nod for that. I think they had an excellent sort of remote first culture. Um, and a, a Canonical really did attract some of the smartest people that and up until that point, I'd ever had a chance to work with. Now, I, I work with some amazing people at Red Hat as well, and some awesome people at at, uh, at Kinetic before it and so on and so forth. But I think on the whole, like almost everyone that I worked with there was, was absolutely stellar. And this was, this was a, a company that I could see, you know, limitless potential for mm. at least initially. <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is where maybe the story changed for me. And, and I decided to sort of start so looking at at moving on was that once I'd built up this team and this organization, the world was also sort of shifting along with it. And one of the challenges that I, I felt uh, that Canonical had was very much, um, yes, they were putting a lot of investment into Linux on the desktop through OEMs, and they, they still are. You can still mm -hmm. buy... Um, pre-installed Dell and HP um, laptops and machines, even high specification ones with Ubuntu pre-installed on them. And yes, they were putting a lot of effort into you know public and, and private cloud. But then there were also lots of other random things that sort of popped up and really consumed a huge amount of engineering resources and, and sort of brain power to and diverted a lot of resources for questionable gain, things like, uh, for those of you who remember it, uh, the Ubuntu phone uh, and the Ubuntu tablet experience and uh, Ubuntu TV even. Uh, so, yes. Uh, and those things were huge distractions to, in, in, in my personal opinion, to sort of what 
I thought was our core mission. And I, I got to the point where I thought, okay, like we need to stop sort of chasing the, the next shiny object. We need to sort of have, have more focus. And I, I wanted to sort of be somewhere where I could have more focus. And so, uh, as, as had happened previously, you know, a few people that I'd worked with at Red Hat had, uh, had moved on to Canonical. Some of them also moved on to other places as well. And some of the people that I'd met at, uh, at Canonical also moved on again. And once again, this, this world, this small world, um, reached out to me and a few people started saying, Hey, you should, uh, you should come and, uh, come and see what we're up to here. There's lots of cool things going on. And, uh, once more, after a while I was tempted, felt the time was right and, uh, made my next move. Ooh, cliffhanger again. Mm -hmm. I just want to react to the thing you said about having focus and looking at the company, having a focus and it's a bit of a double-edged sword, right? If you only do one thing as a company, you're a bit in a trouble position because if that one mm. thing goes away, you have yep. nothing. So having a diverse portfolio is good, but knowing yep. what other things complement and don't distract from your core business, that's a very hard thing to do. And yeah, I think you're right. That, uh, they could have made better choices. It was, and it was also the, it's the starting and stopping things. It's the sort of emotional whiplash mm. of, we're charging in this direction and like massive investment and then drop that. Now we're charging in this direction, massive investment and then drop that, you know, six, nine, 12 months later. It's just, yeah, it's tough. It's tough for an organization to pivot that quickly in so many different sort of directions. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like it, you want to diversify your portfolio of offerings, but it's easier to do that if the offerings are aligned because it's easier for your internal staff to sort of grow their mental map by, you know, n degrees of, of knowledge or awareness of, of an, of an ecosystem or, uh, a set of, a set of ISVs or, uh, you know, set of industry verticals. But, you know, if it, if it more looks like a sort of five pointed star of directions, you want people to to sort of understand it can become you know, far more complicated. Yeah. Unless you Google, if you have internet amount of money and people, then you can try to do that. But even they could have been a better company if they had had a little bit more self-control, I think. Well, Google or Alphabet, because really it's Alphabet, no, isn't right. it? I was talking about the old Google, because new Google mm. doesn't do it that much anymore, to be honest. They've, they've yeah. kind of learned or become enterprise, I don't know. Mm. Anyway, back to me, because um, I was at uh, Hortonworks and I, obviously I left Hortonworks to move somewhere else. And this is actually the third time that I was contacted by a recruiter. So while you kind of do it by the social network, I basically stay where I am, but I always uh, talk to recruiters if they contact me. Not so much headhunters. I mean, there's a couple of headhunters that I've been worked with before and I like, and I will talk to them. Recruiters for companies, definitely for bigger companies, I will always talk to just to hear what they have to say and learn what the business is. And it's just one part of that whole getting the thing better to know how it works. Sorry, something going wrong there with the technology. But anyway, so I talked to a recruiter and this was a step I made where friends and foe told me I was totally crazy. 
because I've been working with open source all my life. I mean, Silicon Graphics was an open source. Well, they ended up with Linux and it was always Unix based. So I still see them as open source-ish, let's say. <laughs> but also about Hortonworks, uh, I was seriously looking around at that point because the merger of Hortonworks and um, the other guys, Cloudera, was kind of starting to happen. The, the Hadoop world was kind of going through the, it was over the hump, let's say, it was getting a bit less interesting. And yeah, that's meant that I was open to recruiters and this recruiter had a good story and it was a recruiter from Microsoft. Now I confess, I was that annoying person that spelled Microsoft to the dollar sign in the name when I was young. So I wasn't really a Microsoft fanboy. And also told the recruiter that if they ever wanted me to sell Windows, I would quit. <laughs> <laughs> to my surprise, he said, that's not a problem. Ooh, that, now, that, now I'm interested. And there are actually two reasons that I joined Microsoft. And they're kind of the same reason, but the thing is they were looking to start open source pods within Microsoft. Because at that day, in those days, there was still the, Bal the Balmer era. had just ended. Uh, Satya Nadella had just taken over. So the whole idea of Windows first and everything needs to be Windows and uh, Linux is a virus and whatever... That was moving away and they were actually looking for open source people to learn, to teach Microsoft to do open source because Azure needs to do more open source and we're running behind on Amazon, things like that. So that was actually what at that point they were doing, feeding the Microsoft machine open source talent. I'm calling myself talent now, sorry. And that sounded like a good idea. And it's also illustrating why you should always be open to companies, even if you have some preconceptions about the company. You don't know. If you don't work for the company, you don't know. You might think that the company is perfect and wonderful. When you join them, it really goes badly. And the opposite is valid too. And after my years at Microsoft, I can only say it is a brilliant company. There are brilliant people there. It's a good company to work for. I did leave in the end. More about that later. But when I was there, I was able to really grow as a person. Because Microsoft does very good people skilling and that was very beneficial for me because as you mentioned earlier in the pre-sales role you kind of have to have the right mentality and I had to change my mentality a little bit and one thing I really 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 had to change was the perfectionism. I wanted to be prepared for every meeting 100% know exactly what was going to be said exactly what's going to be done and that doesn't work in pre-sales. The chaos is real and you have to embrace the chaos. And when I mentor now, one of the things, if I know people coming from a support or, co or consulting role, something like that, or a DevOps role, is tell them, good enough is good enough. And that's not in a bad way. It's just that you can't make yourself be prepared 100% because you can't predict the discussion. It's much more better to have that all-rounded information, knowledge base, and be able to react to where the conversation goes. And if you go too much in perfection and you kind of already read, uh, memorize what you're going to say, it's much harder to pivot if something goes different in the conversation. So by not, by not allowing me to do that perfection drive, let's say, and this sounds very thick-headed perhaps, but it's, it's the truth, it made me drop the stress levels enormously because I kind of started the meeting with, we'll see. I prepared, I know, I know the things I know we're going to talk about, and if something else happens, we'll see, and I'll do my best. And typically, I find that my customers react very well to that. Because the worst, if I was on the other side of the table, the worst pre-sales experience you can have is if the pre-sales is sitting there doing his demonstration, doing presentation, and only wants to tell his story or her story, and isn't mm -hmm. able to deviate at all. That's not the communication. That's sending only, and hoping it gets received. Trust me, it's not being received. 
you need to be able to play play the game, the back and forth, the interaction, and be able to have that flexibility to talk about other things. And that's things that I really learned a lot about at Microsoft because uh, soft skilling at Microsoft was very high. At Hortonworks, the technological skilling was very important. Soft skilling was less important. That being said, I was a junior SA, so maybe I wasn't the target, the target audience for soft skilling. But at Microsoft, soft skilling is just, yeah, it's what you do. And that really helped a lot. So I'm still very grateful to have worked there. I learned a lot there. And the reason I went there was because, I mean, the first reason was they're looking for these open source pods. And the second reason I went there, and that was the main reason I went there, to be honest, is Microsoft was changing. This was a huge company, a mastodont of a company, one of the biggest companies in the world. And they were pivoting from a purely, this is Microsoft's products only, to open source, whatever. Azure, we, whatever, doesn't matter what it is. As long as it runs on Azure, we'll do it. And it's impossible to understand, unless you live through something like this, how hard it is to make a company do a 180 like that. And being a part of that and on, on the right side of the of the 180, because I was the point that we're pivoting to with my open source knowledge, that's a good point to be. The people who are totally in the entrenched Microsoft uh, headspace, I'm assuming they had a much harder uh, time at it. But it's actually a very, I mean, this Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. Working at an interesting time at a company that's doing something like this, it may not be interesting for you on an intellectual level, on a pure technological level, but on the personal growth level, just seeing how people react to that, how they cope with that, how uh, the, the, what's happening in, in a situation like that, that has been invaluable. And I don't think I'll ever have the same kind of experience ever again, because there's not that many companies like Microsoft in the technology sphere that can do this kind of really big change uh, in the company itself. And well, those two things really helped me a lot to become a better person, I think, as well. And in the end, um, as all things go, we were very successful. Microsoft became open source minded. There's not, they're not 100% open source. They're still a company just like Google and just like Amazon and all the other companies are in there. But the pivoting happened, it worked. And after about four years, I just became another Microsofty. It was kind of fun. It was very comfortable and you could do no wrong, to be honest, because you've been doing it for a couple of years and it worked. But the, that, that, that excitement of the change of the company, that was gone. That was not there. It was just going to the job again every day. And sure, remote working, but still, even if you're remote working, is going to the job every day. So after about four years, I was uh, yeah, kind of looking around because it was still Microsoft and big companies have their disadvantages too. I mean, the one advantage mm. is you have a lot of opportunities. You can do a lot of things. Disadvantage is you're, you're, you're minuscule in the big machine. And for me, I found in the end that that actually was detrimental to my enthusiasm, to my, 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 my spirits, my, my, yes, joie vivre, to say it in French, mm. because I don't know the English word for it apparently. And well, things like that means that you don't really want to leave, but well, if people reach out and want to talk to you, you start talking to people again. And when somebody comes with a good story and unfortunately for Microsoft, if you have a bad manager at that point, because my first manager at Microsoft was absolutely brilliant. Hmm. And if you're listening, you're not, but you know who you are. The <laughs> manager I left was the opposite and there's the old, the old saying people don't leave companies they leave managers mm. well in this case that was double true 
but before I tell you what I went to then, we're going to go back to my co-host, who can take the steering wheel of the plane again. And we're going to cut the episode here, because when we record this episode, we kind of ran on a little bit, which we hardly <laughs> ever do. But because it is bite-sized, big tech, we kind of have to keep the episodes a little bit bite-sized, so we decided to cut this one into two pieces. So sorry for the hard break, but the next part of this episode we'll uh, have online next week for your enjoyment, I hope. Anything else you want to say before we close this one off then? I don't think so. Let's, uh, let's wrap it up and uh, leave it there. In that case, that is all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast. Please become a patron. Contributions do help, and we like our patrons a lot. We are on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, hit notification bell, do YouTube stuff, make Dave happy. You can go to www.orgenhealth.org. There's links there to the Patreon page, the YouTube page, and a lot more information about the podcast itself, including all the back episodes, of course. So if you want to start from now from one, three hundred couple, and you're done. You can also find me on Roar, on Twitter using the @roaringelfin tag, and you can send email to podcast at roaringelf.org. Please send us your feedback. Do you like this kind of episode or not? Let us know and maybe we'll do more or less. Until next time, my name is, it's going to be a hell of an editing job, John. And my name is Hardcut Dave. Ooh, like that one. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye-bye. See you then. Hardcut Dave's the, the, the triple X, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>